0: We are starting studying the subject of what happens in the future. And we've looked at it from the perspective that the future is from the moment of our death on. And we've accomplished some of those things as far as looking at them. And the theological name for what we're studying is eschatology. For the last two weeks, we have been trying to define the different views uh, that have been formulated, that have been accepted as orthodox positions, as right positions in the reformed uh, church. And so far, we've uh, focused on the differences between those views. We've uh, looked at what millennialists believed. We looked at what postmillennialists believed, and what historic premillennialists believed. Now, today and likely the next week or two, we'll look at a doctrine that all three positions have in common and uh, that will distinguish these three positions from a fourth position that we're going to consider today a little bit, called dispensationalism. Now, let's think for just a moment the things that are in common among the three different positions that we already studied. What does what the amillennialism, postmillennialism, and historic premillennialism have in common? Well, they all believe in a physical future return of Christ. That's, they have that in common. They all believe in a physical future resurrection of the saints. They all have that in common. They also all believe in a future physical resurrection of the wicked. They have that in common. They all believe in a judgment to come for the wicked. And they all believe that Christ will be ultimately declared victorious and uh, he will rule in the eternity future. So, these things are in common uh, with all those positions. And uh, it is not a biblical position if they deny any of those things. If a position denies a future resurrection, a future return of Christ, a future judgment, uh, those, that position then is no longer a Bible uh, faithful position. Uh, do, do you understand what I'm saying? Uh, and There are some that believe that every single prophecy in the Bible has already been fulfilled. And, uh, and this is it. <laughs> so this is heaven. We're good to go from now on. So that's not an acceptable biblical position. There are things that are still going to happen in the future. And that, the, these different positions have that in common. The uh, doctrine that we will be considering today and in the next week or two is the nature and identity of the church, and this is a, a doctrine of major importance. And the reason I want to talk about the nature and identity of the church in a series on eschatology, because eschatology is one category of systematic of theology, the nature of the church is usually follow, follow, falls under a different category of system of theology called ecclesiology or just the doctrine of the church but we have to be careful that we don't isolate different areas of theology so much that we don't see contact or connections between them. And the reason I wanted to talk about it, particularly as we study historic premillennialism, which is the position I think the Bible teaches concerning the doctrine of less things, is I want that I want to dissipate the unfounded accusation that, uh, and usually this accusation is brought by the less informed, that historic premillennialism, is um, the same thing as dispensational premillennialism. And I'm going to define that word. I've been using that word dispensational, dispensationalism, without defining it. I'm going to try to define it in a couple of minutes. The truth is that there is a world of difference between these two systems, and at the core of that difference is the identity of the church. Uh, Historic premillennialism is born out of a covenantal understanding of the scriptures that ties the church with the Abrahamic covenant, that ties who we are today with the promises made to Abraham back in Genesis 12, 13, 15, 17, and 22. And, and this is anything but dispensationalism. You can label it, everything, it anything. The only thing you can not label it is dispensationalism. So please listen to me get over the idea that in order to be a historic millennialist you have to be a It's It's a straw man argument. That's not true. And you're just going to sound foolish if you make that argument, because I'll destroy it in 30 seconds. Okay? With one hand tied behind my back. All right, So save yourself the embarrassment. <laughs> Charles Ryrie, which some of you know, some of you still carry his study Bible around. You know, I, I have a lighter in my, bo- in my pocket. If I see you carrying that, I'll burn it. Uh, no, I won't do that. But uh, uh, Charles Ryrie, who is considered the fa- father of modern dispensationalism, Charles Ryrie is the famous professor at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. He says the following concerning um, dispensationalism in his book, Dispensationalism Today. So if you want to know what dispensationalism read that book. It's not very thick. Uh, you have a good picture uh, it's always good to. It's always better to learn what a position is saying from the proponents of that position. Uh, anyway, if you can do that, so uh, you can read Ryrie. and he says this: He says, "What then? Um, okay, what then is the sine qua non of dispensationalism? What is? What is it that is essential? If you don't have it, you don't have dispensationalism anymore. That's what sine qua non means. The answer is threefold." A dispensationalist keeps Israel and the church distinct. Chafer, Chaffer was another famous, uh, I think his name was Louis Speary Chaffer, a famous Dallas Theological Seminary um, professor. It says, Chaffer summarized it as follows. The dispensationalist believes that throughout the ages, God is pursuing two distinct purposes. One related to the, the earth with earthly people and earthly objectives involved, which is Judaism, while the other is related to heaven with heavenly people and heavenly objectives involved, which is Christianity. So uh, they say that this doctrine teaches that God has two people, a, a heavenly spiritual people that we call the church and a completely separate, no connection, earthly people called the, called the Israel, an ethnic Israel. And that's, they say it's true even today. Uh, Rari continues, this is probably the most basic theological test of whether... Or not, a man is a dispensationalist, and it is undoubtedly the most practical and conclusive. A man who fails to distinguish Israel and the church will inevitably hold to, not hold to dispensational distinctions, and one who does well. So that's really at the bottom line. That's why we're going to talk about the nature of the church, because that's really the, 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 the major difference between what I'm trying to teach you and dispensationalism. Now, Rari says there are two other di- 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 distinctions. One, he says that dispensationalists interpret the Scriptures literally, and he also says that dispensationalists see the goal of life, the glory of God, where others like us would see uh, something different. Now, these two other points are straw men. Uh, every position claims to interpret the Scriptures literally. Uh, because interpreting something literally means interpreting how it was meant to be interpreted taking into account figures of speech, taking into account genre, taking into account uh, the the intention of the author in writing that. And uh, and, uh, we also would disagree with the glory of God. Does anybody remember what the first question to the most reformed catechism ever written asks? What is the chief end of man? And what is the chief end of man? To glorify God. (laughs) <laughs> to enjoy him forever, that everything exists, we exist to glorify God. So we would argue that uh, um, that uh, may have uh, gotten that those two uh, wrong, but the first one is completely right. It is that is the difference. That's the main difference between dispensationalists and all other millenary positions. Is the relationship to Israel and the Church, and historic premillennialists reject the absolute distinction between Israel and the Church. Levi. Right. Uh, yeah, usually it, uh, they mean by that, let's look at the trees and forget the forest sort of thing. And, uh, and we would let's look at the trees and the forest would be the best way to look at it. But I think it's profitable for us to look at a brief definition of Dismissationalism so that um, we can um, actually know what we're talking about before we continue. Um, the guy on the picture is C.I. Schofield. Yeah, the disposition, the position of dispensationalism was popularized in the United States, at least, in an old school field study Bible. It was one of the first study Bibles of modern of modern time. A lot of influence there. Though dispensationalism, really, dispensationalism really started in England among the Brethren churches. Uh, in uh, a man by the last name of Darby, kind of formulated that. But it really became popular in the United States, especially through. Uh, Conferences on prophecies. Uh, in the late, mid to late 1800s, there was a, a several conferences in Niagara Falls area on prophecy. And uh, that's where this teaching of dispensationalism became very popular there. Uh, the original teaching taught that God dealt with his people in different ways through the time. That God not only dealt, but saved his people differently in different periods of time. And these periods of times we call dispensations, which is just another way of talking about an epoch, an age, a period of time. That in one period of time, God saved people by uh, just a a vague faith in his higher power. (laughs) almost like AA. And then, uh, and then another, another period of time, God saved people by actual obedience, by keeping the law. And then another period of time, God saved... So that's how it became with the name dispensationalism, because these different periods of time, these different dispensations different that God would interact with people differently. The problem with that is that Hebrews 11, which is the chapter of the people whose faith we should have, the same type of faith, it, it, uh, it doesn't really match the different... Dispensations, the different period of time that supposedly God saved different people differently, and there the Holy Spirit says that all these people had the same kinds of faith that we are supposed to have today. And but that's not really what's believed today anymore. Uh, People like John MacArthur, who's a big proponent of dispensationalism, even Charles Ryrie wouldn't say that anymore. They they would say that the Old Testament saints are uh, saved by faith the same way that the New Testament saints are. But they would say that the Old Testament promises to Israel are conceived of as unconditional. That every single promise made to Israel has to happen if there's no condition in any of them. And there is a greater emphasis on the physical nature of these promises and on, uh, on their literal fulfillment. And that's, that they say that in the time of Jesus, the, the nation of Israel rejected the Mosaic Covenant uh, and the promises of it. Okay, we agree with that. But the difference that they have there is that because of that, there was a pause put there. The kingdom promises were thus withdrawn from Israel until the millennium when they were fulfilled. As if God put a pause on that promise and now he's going to run plan B on the side and that plan B is called the church. You know, secondary action, even though that's supposed to be the bride of Christ, but that's secondary. And then that's, once Christ returns in the millennium, all these things are going to happen to... Israel. So all future prophecies regarding, regarding the millennium are only to ethnic Israel, nothing from the church there, okay? Um, you know, they, they tend to really, def- the, you know, the book of Daniel talks about the 70 weeks. They make a big deal about that. The 69 weeks have already happened and we're waiting for the last week and that last week is going to all be about ethnic or physical Israel. And that clock will start ticking again once the church is raptured in their teaching. And the future tribulation will happen to judge and purify physical, ethnic Israel. Now, the New, church is, New Testament church is a separate body from Israel with separate identity, functions, promises, and destination. This future Israel is never going to go to heaven. It's going to be a earthly sort of existence, and the church is the one that's going to be in eternal heaven. Almost like a, a Jehovah Witness sort of differentiation um, uh, there as well. And that the church is just a mystery not knowing the Old Testament. It's kind of parenthesis, a plan B in God's sight. So in essence, Christ has two brides. You have the earthly bride called Israel, ethnic Israel, and then the heavenly bride called the church. So in essence, Christ is a bigamist. Two different... Uh, uh, brides this earthly bride and these this heavenly uh, bride and they also teach that in the millennium Israel will have been uh, converted and will receive the kingdom promises which promises will include a reestablishment of legal Jewish legal law system and temple sacrifices as well there will be temple sacrifices there and earthly uh, Israel will be an earthly people the church a heavenly people and will reside in heaven in short Israel and the church are entirely distinct. Future tribulation will be only for Israel, not the church. Um, And that's kind of a very brief, very quick summary of their teaching, but I think I've hit all the major tenets that are popular. And this is a position, I assume, that a lot of you have been mostly exposed to in the United States, because it is the prevalent position of evangelicalism today. Uh, a lot of times adopted uh, thoughtlessly, I mean, meaning just that's what it is. There's not a lot of thinking about it, uh, but it's not a biblical position. Any questions before we continue? Doug? How would like, John MacArthur or a proponent of dispensationalism today um, interpret Hebrews? Would they just interpret that for the church and not for Hebrews? So the question is, how does a current dispensationalist, a modern dispensationalist, interpret the book of Hebrews? I'm assuming the cessation of sacrifices, yeah. so uh, a guy like John MacArthur sees says yes there 'll be a temple, but the sacrifice will have no meaning okay. just what we, yeah that 's what they were going to do mm-hmm. i can 't see research trying really hard to formulate a question in her head, but she 's not quite sure yet what that question is jim hunter uh, what, what was the uh, historic position of the BP church, and if it, if it was that or something close to that, when did it the historic position, the the position of the Bible Church has been also always historic premillennialism. That's what our confession says. That's what our confession teaches, and that's even when our confession was adopted, was a large resolution including in our minutes that states that. Now, th- that was inconsistently applied, and as has been as in any other denomination, a lot of inconsistent Bible Presbyterian, the presby- Bible Presbyterians that held. The, some of these views regarding the future but not regarding the past so very inconsistent they would not separate the church from Israel as far as covenant theology but they would have this inconsistent position about the future so um, that was present at some times of our church but it's never been the official position of our church it's it's definitely not the position it's not an acceptable position today nobody would be ordained with that position today as an elder or as a minister All right, any other questions before we continue? All right, yes, Tilly. Right, so just remember that's a quote from Romans nine. Uh, so in uh, Romans eleven, so that's there. And okay, so let's think about it. Let's pray that the Jews be called and the, the Gentiles come in. Who's left out of that? So what is that? What's the prayer then? The conversion of the world, Jews and Gentiles. Really, that's what the the the, the prayer. And it's also the prayer that the in that prayer we're praying the Lord Jesus would come back. Right. Uh, so that's really there. It's not really, um, it's using biblical categories or biblical language to pray for the conversion of the whole world there Jews and Gentiles. Okay. Yes, Katie Lutz. I feel like, this is, like the churches that I've been to, this has always been their uh-huh. Israel mm-hmm. not, not really part of the teaching. Is it pretty common not to, like, emphasize those? Things, or I it? it's, well, I both. <laughs> I, was, uh, I think that uh, we can miss stuff, but I also think that in, it, it's, it's very common in, in broadly evangelical churches to not be very precise about theology and what is believed. Especially if there is any notion that they might be, bring some controversy um, there. So, but this is like the official position? I, I do not know any any thinking dispensation. Was. So remember I told you I'm going to define things according to what's written uh, that would not hold to, to this. But you're probably going to find somebody somewhere that might say, no, that's not my position. It might be true, but that's not, so that he would be an aberration to the position. All right? Any other questions? So, um, uh, it's not something I had planned for right now, but I'll cover right now. Some of you have been asking about, how about temple, uh, how about the temple? uh, Is it going to be rebuilt? And how about sacrifices? And since I say this is, this position holds it and I don't hold to this position, you should conclude that I don't think there'll be a rebuilding of the temple and that the sacrifices will be offered. And there's a couple of reasons. One is called the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews says that there is no more sacrifices. So the idea that somehow in the future you're going to have sacrifices that God says we don't have anymore is contradictory there. Two, Revelation 21 says that in the New Jerusalem there will be no temple. And uh, the Revelation also says that the New Jerusalem is established at the coming of Christ, not at some time future to the coming of Christ. So there is no temple in the New Jerusalem. And then you say, but, pastor, eight chapters in the book of Ezekiel, the most boring chapters in the whole Bible are about the rebuilding of a temple. Well, if you read chapter 43, which is the, the center chapter of that, it clearly says, if you do all these things, Israel, then... I'll rebuild the temple. And then you get to read their history, the rest of the history of Israel, and what do you read of a faithful people who embraced their Messiah, who submitted themselves to God, who were not after self-righteousness, but after the righteousness? No, we don't read that, right? So the if part, they didn't meet that part. Therefore the then part, the building the temple, is not going to happen. It was a conditional promise based on obedience on the part of God's people in the Old Testament that never happened. So there's no promise to build a temple. and As a matter of fact, John chapter 1 says, remember when it says that uh, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us? Talking about Jesus. I think it's verse 14. The word dwelt there is actually the word for tabernacled. He actually pitched his tent, built his tabernacle. And so, who is the temple? Is the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what he said? Destroy this temple and I'll build it. Rebuild it in three days. Referring to himself. He is the temple. And that's what the Revelation says that there's no need for a temple in the New Jerusalem, including the Millennial Kingdom, because Christ is there and He is the temple. And He's the one that offered the sacrifice, both of the high priest and the sacrifice Himself. Therefore, there will be no need for sacrifices or a temple, and <coughs> therefore, we're not going to have a temple or sacrifices. Any questions on that? Lisa? And yeah, there is where you the for all. Correct. Exactly. And, and so like in talk about Doug's question because John MacArthur is the Bible is what's important to him and he sees that in Hebrews then he has to say yeah there'll be a temple yeah there'll be sacrifices but there'll be just memorial sacrifices they don't mean anything just to remind us of what Christ has done but the, the whole book of Hebrews says that those things were shadows right and now that we have the, right, the, the real thing we don't look at the shadows it's like You know, the the military husband gets deployed, the wife has pictures, or talks to him him via FaceTime or Zoom, and then he returns home, and she refuses to actually talk to him face-to-face. He only wants to talk to him via Zoom. That would be the idea of having sacrifice to remind us of Christ, when Christ is right there, standing before us. You weren't here the whole time. Go ahead. So it seems like the dispensationalist the temple is a really big deal and they kind of build a lot around it. Mm-hmm. Yet what you just gave seemed like such an easy resolution. to mm-hmm. that problem? Why isn't that, do you have any idea why that's not compelling to them? What you said about the, the center point of that Be- Because the, they fail to understand the connection between Israel and the church. That is the key point. Once you see that, you don't need all these other things because you see the fulfillment of several prophecies in the church itself, herself. And you don't need to be expecting a future ethnically Jewish uh, uh, millennium. Think about it. It's completely dispensationalism. Eschatological dispensationalism makes no sense either. Because think about it. A lot of Christian dispensationalists are pro-Israel and they want all Jews to move to Israel. Right, that that Zion, they tend to be Zionists. Let's make all these, and their theology says that God is going to zap Israel. So let's make everybody move, all the Jews move to Israel, so we can zap them, and hopefully a few get saved. So it's, it's irrational in that way as well. So. Um. All right. So all I've said so far. So it's supposed to have taken five minutes, but that's okay. Any other questions before we continue? All right. So the uh, my ne- my goal next is to actually look at the idea of the church, and to start by looking at the word church in the Bible, because a lot of a lot of is made of it. And the word church in the Bible is not used in unified sense. You can't get a definition and apply it to the whole Bible. The, the, the king of meaning is context. How is a word used in the passage it, find? it finds itself? That's what defines, determines its meaning. And one way that the word church is used as the collection of all true believers through the ages. That's what our confession calls the invisible church. Or others have called it the eschatological church or the triumphant church, you can see it's used in that term in Hebrew in that way in Hebrews 12, 22-23, where there the Spirit says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to, in, to innumerable angels in festal gatherings, and to the assembly. That word assembly there is the word church. To The assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the Judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made person. So the word church is used to the collection of all the saints ever saved who is the presence of Jesus Christ. So that's the invisible church, and that's the word church. So we can use it in that way. Another way that that word is used is the collection of professing Christians and their children at that point of time. It's a little different here. This is a snapshot. How the how the Church that we can see in a period of time. and the word church in the Bible is used to refer to that. That's what our confession calls the visible church. We can call it the historical church or the militant church, the church that's fighting right now is used that way in 1 Corinthians 10:32 where Paul says, "Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the Church of God. A church that is present right now. You can't offend a church that's not present at the moment. In 1 Corinthians 59 says, "For I am the least of the apostles." Unworthy to be called an apostle because it persecuted the church of God. The word church here, Paul didn't persecute this abstract group. He was actually after physical Christian church at the time he lived. So here we have the church, word church used, a little different than the first time, to talk about the saints and their children present in the time. Also, the, church, the word church is used to, to, to talk about the gathering of believers in the same place. We call it the local church. So the word "church" in the Bible is used to refer to us. What we're doing right here in Colossians five fifteen, I think the SV uh, puts it uh, 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 translates a little better. Where it says, "Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to the to Nympha and the church in her house." So that's the church, the local church meeting at Nympha's house, and you can see that that's a different way that the word is used from the previous two ways that we. So we can see that it's used a little different. Another fourth way is that the, is the, the word church is used as the collection of several churches in a geographical area. Uh, it's in, in, used that way in Acts 9.31. I mean, again, using the ESV for that verse, it says, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee. So those, the, the word singular church, talking about all the... You know, there are several gatherings in that area, but the word church is used for the collection of all of those gatherings there. And then the word church is also used To refer as a church as an organism emphasizing the people in it. That's how Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, chapters 12 through 14, where he talks about the church as a body, as an organism, as the different parts of the the body there, which is different than just the local church, which is different than the visible church and the invisible church or the churches in the region. And lastly, the word church is also used to refer to the church as an institution to which the sacraments were given which exercises church discipline, to which corporate worship was given, which is called the ground and pillar of the church. So this is the church as an institution. Paul uses that way in First Timothy 3.15, um, where he says, But if, if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. It is to this use of the word church that the Great Commission is given to define what the church does in the Great uh, Commission. In, in, this, in this part of our study, in, this is the definition of the church that we're going to be considering because that's what matters to what we're talking about, though these categories are not so mutually exclusive. They're going to leak into each other, but that's the, the idea that we're going to be looking at. We're not quite through our word study of the word church yet because we're going to look at how that word is used in the Old Testament, but we're going to end here today and we have time for one or two questions if they're quick questions. All right, so let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you are a God who teaches through your word and through your church. We pray that we'll be faithful to what your word teaches us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.